On this episode of the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International, our guest is Tim Ross. Tim is the pastor of Hopwood Christian Church and a former CMF church planning missionary. He and his family served with the Maasai people in Kenya. Tim will share with us his journey of faith and his calling and how a kid from a cornfield in Indiana ended up living in a shack with his family in Kenya for three years. I'm your host, Jake Moore. Welcome to the Fellowship. Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Podcast by CMF International. I'm your host, Jake Moore, and I'm excited today to have my good friend and mentor, Tim Ross, uh, on this episode of the Fellowship Podcast with me. Hello, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jake and CMF friends and whoever else is listening. Be here. Good to be with you today. It's so great to have you on. Uh, I am genuinely excited to have you on uh, because not only are you my friend, but you are a former CMF missionary, and you also are extremely influential on a number of our missionaries that have come through the Johnson City area, going to Milligan, uh, going to Emmanuel Christian Seminary, and have had decades now of interactions with CMF and CMF missionaries, both as a missionary and now as a mentor to missionaries. So it's really, it's an honor to have you on today. It's good to be together with you. Tim, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your current ministry, and where you're at uh, in East Tennessee in Johnson City and, and your role uh, at your church. Could you share just a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. When we came back service uh, in Kenya, I um, came to Milligan and to the Hopwood Christian Church where I'm a pastor uh, currently. So that's been like almost... Well, it's over two decades that I've I've been serving here, and um, it's a it's a great church right on the campus of uh, Milligan and Emmanuel. We have uh, a lot of students coming through, and and a lot of uh, missionaries and former missionaries that, that make their way uh, through. It's a very um, broad-minded congregation. Uh, they're we're involved all over the world, of course, with uh, ministries and missions. Also, I uh, do some teaching mm-hmm. at uh, Emmanuel Christian Seminary. Yeah. Uh, just finished a, an intro to mission course with uh, MDiv students. I'll be teaching uh, a doctoral course in the fall. Usually just mainly, usually maybe one course a semester, sometimes two. But uh, I've been able to stay involved in, in missions that way. Now, I've, I called you my good friend, Tim Ross, but should I say my good friend, Dr. Timothy no. Ross, like, no, I think, no? I think we're good friends. I think that works just that's, well. That's better. Yeah, much better. I, I know that you, you also don't like to be referred to as reverend, right? Is that, is that usually? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't use that. <laughs> call me whatever you want. You can call me whatever you want, but I won't, I, won't call, I won't call you Jake the Snake, which is uh, on in my mind probably. But. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Well, that's, that's probably best uh, that we both uh, honor one another in that way. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll just call you Tim for now. Um, so I would love to, yeah, backtrack then now from you've been at Hopwood for going on 20 years, 20 plus years. 20 plus. Yeah. 
and you have seen a lot of missionaries come through that area of Tennessee, but you yourself were a missionary and not just a missionary. You are a missionary with CMF International. You are a CMF missionary in Kenya. And really today in this episode, I'd love to spend some time focusing on your terms of service uh, and how you got to Kenya. Like what did your calling look like uh, going from a college student, young adult to then being uh, a missionary in Kenya and what does the day in and day out of life and ministry in Kenya with the Maasai people look like? So maybe could you start out by sharing with us a little bit of you're in Tennessee now, but is that originally where you're from? Is that where you grew up? Um, and maybe give us a picture too of the journey of faith for you as you went from your childhood, youth to college and how you ended up in Kenya. Sure. Yeah. I grew up in a little cornfield in Indiana, North Indiana. A uh, very tiny little town, less than a thousand people. Um, my parents are actually Oklahomans. Mm-hmm. We're, Boom, we're boomer sooner. Boomer sooner. Uh, <laughs> actually, probably the other side. We're we're mm-hmm. Cherokee uh, Indians. And yeah, I know. Uh, it's, I'm sorry. Members, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> members of the Western tribe, but um, so I grew up uh, in a very um, probably ethnocentric a little part of the country that was not very diverse at all and um, maybe didn't didn't have a very broad worldview but uh, I was part of the church part of the Christian church there Grew up with a, a desire from a really young age to serve the Lord uh, to uh, thought about ministry from a very young age as well really um, yep yep probably uh, some of the big influences on me those days were uh, church camp in the summertime where I began to meet a string stream of, uh, of international missionaries. And um, so I was always fascinated in, in cultures and languages and, and uh, yet didn't have a lot of opportunity to, to do much. This is also back far enough to where this is way before the age of short-term mission trips. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, nobody I know went on trips till I was in. Mm-hmm college days, really. And um, so I came to uh, Milligan to go to undergrad. Mm-hmm. And intentionally for ministry? Is that what you were thinking? When you yeah, I studied for ministry and also studied as an as an English teacher. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, thinking that maybe I would uh, blend those professions and uh, figure out a way to, to, uh, to feed both of those areas of my life. Um. It was uh, it was at Milligan that um, I did my student teaching down on the Cherokee Reservation in North Carolina, mm. and uh, and a job came up in youth ministry with one of my former pastors uh, back in Indiana. Okay. So this was at the time when um, my wife and I, Marsha, were were dating, and um, so he uh, I went first to uh, start this youth ministry. And uh, we got married shortly after that, and we were in Indiana in this uh, in this ministry for about about three years. And it was while we were uh, working with kids, trying to help kids to grow a bigger world vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were having a mission emphasis weekend, and a couple people to to speak and talk. Uh, we began to uh, sense a call on our lives uh, towards a world mission also back in the day when Keith Green was having uh, 
he was a guy that did a lot of uh, Christian music and mm -hmm. had a big emphasis on mission as well. Mm -hmm. Polo uh, would come to our area and speak occasionally. Wow. And uh, so all those things began to to work on me. Well, it's it's funny to hear that you said you tried to get the youth group like spark an interest in them. Yeah. And then it turned out that it actually was oh absolutely for you in the end more than yeah. more than for those kids. Sometimes I say that youth ministry drove us to uh, to Africa. Um, <laughs> drives you crazy or drives you to Africa? One of yeah the two. yeah. But we still have really fine relationships with mm -hmm. the congregation and and with those kids who actually turned out to be like couple years younger than I am. So yeah. we've, uh, we've had lifelong friendships with them. Mm. Anyway, we, we, uh, I really felt the calling of the Holy Spirit, a, a very direct calling is the best way that I can describe it. That, um, that basically said, I want you to get up from what you're doing. And I want you to, to go somewhere for me. And we didn't know where that was. We, we weren't sure of the journey ahead. And so we began to think about what our next steps might be. And, uh, and I sent a letter to, uh, I didn't know very many missions or missionaries, but I knew a couple folks back from my Milligan days who had uh, relationships with CMF. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I sent a letter to uh, CMF and a guy named Ray Giles somehow mm -hmm. got that letter and sent me a letter back in reply that I still have. Really? That's cool. You need to frame oh, yeah. that. Or do you have it framed anywhere in your house or in your office? No, it's not framed, but I, I definitely have it. And wow. we'll do it every once in a while. And um, he just shared with me that there was a, this was a neat era in Christian mission at a time when a lot of our lives were, were going to count for what God was doing in places. And so uh, through a discernment process, uh, we realized we needed some more education. Mm -hmm. Came back to Emmanuel Christian Seminary and started an MDiv degree. Finished finished up my classes at Fuller. Uh, so was that four years then that you ended up doing that? How did that no, work out? I was two years working on the MDiv, and then um, uh, two and a half years is I finished it. Um, okay. Yeah, and so in that time, we also affiliated with CMF. Uh, our first child was born in that time, and uh, we started started fundraising and uh, deputation. So wow. we, um, I turned in my my MDiv thesis in January, and first of February, nineteen eighty seven, we uh, mm -hmm. claimed for Kenya to work with the Maasai. February nineteen eighty seven. Yeah, yeah. Date that shall live in infamy. Yeah, in infamy for sure. <laughs> We, I, I, we'd, we'd never been there. We'd never set eyes on it. We, we'd only heard stories. Um, but um, that was kind of far for the course back, back then as well. Uh, I think that that's really interesting to hear. So, so often when we talk about recruitment, about people going and serving, uh, we have to do maybe a vision trip for folks. Think through right. maybe they're doing a vision trip, going with us to experience the place, see themselves in the place, think through what the day in and day out would look like for them. But that was not the case for you and Marsha and taking not just as you as a single, but a wife and a kid. Yeah. I don't I, think it's important. To be honest. Yeah. You don't think uh, the vision trip's important? I don't think it tells you what you need to know. Mm. 
and I, I still, I, I mean, I think if you go, it might be a fantastic trip and you might really think, oh, this is a thing for me, but you know what it's like. I mean, romance uh, strikes when you, you don't know if long-term that's going to be a good situation. Mm -hmm. You have no way of judging that. Um, or you might go and it's a horrible experience. Right. And uh, maybe you get sick or maybe maybe you get homesick. Maybe you have a panic attack. That doesn't really tell you what what it's going to be like long-term either. And so I think that, you know, for some people it works. And if it's convenient, then why not? But um, But I don't think that it really teaches you and tells you what you really need. Mm. For me, I, looking back on it, I think we picked a mission. We picked a group of people who could train us, who could support us, who could direct us, and who could help us out when the going got tough. And um, and then we picked a, a place of service. Or they helped pick a place of service for us. So I think kind of placing ourselves the care of a, a really quality organization was was vital okay so so yeah for you it would be co like calling two missions with probably the core of it and then joining a mission agency and then outside of that would be the maasai and kenya and and that sense of of service so but it was the calling to missions itself that was probably the stronger piece for you even why you would be willing to say ah, i don't need a vision trip I can just go and serve and I, I want to go and serve and trust and trust that calling to then the direction of CMF to help you hone that and, and find that direction. Yeah. I think calling makes a lot more sense looking back, you know, at your life and being mm -hmm. able to see the work of God's spirit. Um, and so I absolutely feel like we heard a good call and ended up in the right place. Um, but we didn't, we didn't know that at that time and mm -hmm. we weren't sure. What, what it was going to be like. Yeah. I think we were smart enough to realize that we didn't know a lot about and we really wanted to be involved with people who could, who could help us figure that out. Could it be that things like vision trips in the end, give you a fault, the person that takes the trip, a false assumption that they know what they're stepping into, <laughs> maybe trusting themselves too much. And then for you and Marsha, it was trusting CMF and trusting that God would, continue to hone your calling to the Maasai. D does that, does that make sense? That, that idea yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes you get lucky, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, who of us who are married really knew what we were doing. Mm -hmm. We somehow picked a mate without any help from anybody else. Yeah. Um, and God's gracious. And, and um, you know, it, it, it's wonderful and it works out in most cases, but, um, but what do you really know? You know, mm -hmm. so people around you who also have your best interests in mind but who have a lot broader range of experience uh, i think is is vital yeah i wouldn't want to discount other people's calling with however it might work but i wouldn't change a thing for the way it worked for us and it really sounds like like a commitment or a, a full trust in cmf a, a commitment to the calling and then a trust in cmf was like the bedrock for how you were able to go forward. In, in yeah, and I think that that set a pattern in our lives that, um, you know, folks who go on missions are headstrong and independent. And mm -hmm. uh, I know a few, uh, I know a few that are like that. Yes, yeah, so oftentimes stubborn, 
Uh, I could keep adding adjectives, but you get the you get the drift. Uh, at the same time, um, when you realize that that this is such a, a big task that you're called to, when you realize the goodness of working with a, a team of other uh, wonderful, powerful, uh, bright, independent people, then um, it begins to to make sense to listen to them. Mm-hmm. When it came to issues, for instance, of where you're going to be placed, um, what do you know? You know yeah. about the situation. In those early years, you know very little. You know you you, you don't speak the language so well. Uh, you don't know the culture so well, and so leaning back into the wisdom of a larger team. Um, becomes uh, a pattern in, in your life. And mm-hmm. you begin to, to trust in the wisdom of uh, corporate, uh, corporate guidance. Yeah, I think so. It, that's fascinating to hear, particularly for from your journey and from your story, this idea of the corporateness of it, because so often I think we talk we th- we think about the individual aspect, the individualistic aspect of a calling, or I'm going to go and do this thing over in this place. Um, and it becomes very me centric. Um, and to think about calling and you and Marsha being uniquely who you are was wrapped up in this ministry, but you also entrusted yourself to the team to give guidance and direction. And it became really a team aspect to even seeing how your ministry uh, was fleshed out in the end with the Maasai. That's that's really intriguing to me. Um, so you mentioned Ray Giles, and then you mentioned that there were some people at Milligan that had also been an influence in you uh, on CMF. Was there another Giles uh, involved at some point in there? There's, there were several Giles involved. Uh-huh. In, uh, yeah, David and I were just a couple years apart, got to be mm-hmm. back in, in the college days. Mm-hmm. Also, Greg Johnson. I had uh, known Greg just a little bit. We'd overlapped for one year when I first started college. He was in seminary. And so, uh, and I'd met Doug Priest as well, mm-hmm. um, junior. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were just a few guys that I, I knew of or I, I knew a bit. And uh, David and I were, were friends, but didn't know each other uh, in, a, in a deep, deep way. Yeah. But uh, all these guys were guys that uh, I knew were really sharp, uh, really committed. And, uh, and so I, I kind of trusted the system again and, uh, and felt like that was a, probably going to be a better decision than anything I'd make on my own. Actually did. We had some friends in uh, West Africa and uh, I thought a lot about going as an independent missionary. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that I didn't uh, look at that path. We, uh, we judged it and, and tried to decide uh were we up to doing that on our own as independent missionaries and uh, decided to uh, to fall back on the the wisdom of working in a team and, and really glad we did. Yeah. So February, 1987. Yeah. You moved to Kenya. How long was the flight at that point back in those days? Seems like it was about the same, maybe 16 hours, something like that. But we had two little kids, two boys, three and one. Mm-hmm. Then we had two other kids who were born in Kenya, mm-hmm. boy and a girl. So, uh, yeah, so we stayed uh, at that point. A lot of the team in uh, in Kenya among the Maasai, we uh, we were all kind of enamored with the uh, the teachings of the Brewsters out at uh, at Fuller. Most of us were using the lamp method 
for uh, language learning, language acquisition made practical. And uh, part of their teaching was that you need to spend as little amount of time as possible with your teammates and, uh, and as little amount of time as possible in uh, the city of your, uh, where, where you land. And instead, get as fast as you can out into the heart of where you're going to work mm-hmm. and plant yourself there and bond with um, the folks who are in your neighborhood. So, so it was all about fostering connections with the culture and you're going to do that from day one as soon as you could. Yeah, exactly. So within a couple of days, um, we had at that time we had bridge people, Gary mm-hmm. and Aqua bridge people. And they, really? Yeah. It set up a little shack for us to stay in and uh, brought us brought some furniture up and it was great. They just had um, just enough for you for what you're going to need in those first weeks. And um, we packed up what we had. We didn't even have a vehicle ready at that time and uh, drove us up the mountainside and uh, spent one night with us out of mercy. And, and then it was uh, you're, you're ready to ready to go. Go for it. Tell me a little bit about that shack. Uh, I have a vision yeah. in my head, uh, but uh, maybe it fits the vision or not. Tell me about the shack and what the furniture setup was, even for you, Marsha, and your two little boys. Yeah, we lived in a, a little, um, I guess you would call it a mercantile center of this little area, which meant that there were three little tin metal, corrugated metal shops. Hmm. Like in a row. Yeah, basically. So our next door neighbors were Somalis at uh, the little, little um, duka, little shop, uh, general foods. And, you know, this is, this is a tiny thing. They may have 15 items in the whole store. Like the essentials, like cigarettes, gum, toilet paper. No cigarettes, but they would have like uh, gum, Coke uh, when you could get it, sugar, flour, maize meal, fat, mm-hmm. salt. That's mm-hmm. it. The essentials. Um, so uh, cement floors, um, bats in the ceiling, long drop bathroom, outhouse. Out that, that you shared with the other two dukas? The other two? No, 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 no. We had our own. Um, there was no running water. There was no power within, you know, three or four hours drive that, that area. So uh, so there we were. And uh, we, we lived on rainwater. And um, put up a couple of solar panels, and that became our first home. And it was a great home. We um, it was simple, and yet uh, because people came there to shop, there was nowhere to hide, no privacy to be had, and so we were absolutely forced to uh, into social interaction, mm-hmm. uh, entertainment. I think the community and. Uh, There'd been a couple of CMFers that had done fairly short-term work there. I think Doug and Robin Priest had lived there for a very for a short time, and maybe a couple of years. And uh, du- and then Gary and Linda Brock had lived there for a short time as well. And so um, we were able to lean back on the goodness of the relationships that those guys, those friends, had in the area. So people expected to like us and uh, mm-hmm. and know us. And they expected that we would come to be able to speak with them. 
So almost like you were in a line of legacy at that point of other people that had set a pattern of good relationships, good connections with the community, the entertainment even, and being yeah. fine with being the entertainment that you were like, all right, this is just par for the course. And it was the expectation of the community and came to be your expectation too as a family. Absolutely. And it's that going back to that, that uh, team effort. Mm-hmm. And, and so the Brocks for the first year at that time we had, uh, a family would be assigned to take that first year to kind of shepherd you through changes to uh, just to make sure things were going well. And so they lived about an hour down the road from us and would, uh, you know, we'd get together once a week at first and then a little less later on, but mm-hmm. invaluable to our lives and, and uh, became uh, dear friends and colleagues. Well, so then you, you're living in this little shop, this little shack area. You've got Somali neighbors, but that wasn't the people group that you went to work with. So, right. from a language standpoint, how did that work out? And how did what did your rhythm for language studies look like? Yeah, uh, so English is one of the national languages of Kenya, and most folks who've been to school for a few years were speaking some English. And so, I had a series of uh, of language helpers. That, uh, that would come in and spend uh, a couple hours with me every day. And then uh, I would spend the rest of the time uh, working on language, uh, both myself and then every day I was spending hours and hours out in the villages, uh, putting into practice the things that I'd learned in those hours. Um, I uh, language system we used is designed to help you learn in some ways as a child learns, where uh, you internalize the grammar, not by uh, pouring through grammar books, but in those first months, by simply trying to speak and to speak mm. all sentences uh, that a language helper would, would help you to translate and listen to you and work on your accent. And then you'd go out and try those, th- those uh, sentences that you were learning on as many people as would uh, as would have you, mm-hmm. and uh, and in that process, you were not only working on language, but you were making friends and and developing a route of people who were happy generally to see you every day, and uh, who took you under the wing, and uh, so a lot of chaos and craziness ensued as uh, as you became uh, part of the neighborhood. You said generally, generally happy to see you. Did you ever get run off or anybody tell you in a few choice words to scram on your language? Uh, no, we, we were actually uh, really well received by, by our community. Um, we lived among kind of at a border line of two different sub tribes. And um, one of those groups, uh, diviners among the Maasai, mm-hmm. Um, it was a beautiful place to live. It was it was high in the highlands of uh, or between Kenya and uh, Tanzania, and uh, the weather was was beautiful and perfect. Um, there were a lot of animals around. It was kind of a kids' paradise. Great to raise uh, raise kids, and I think that um, that having children also um, helped us to uh, to find a good home among the Maasai. They were, they were really kind to us and, and we love being there. Yeah. So how did you guys transition to then your ministry place? You said you needed to, the shack was temporary. That was just your language year. When did you 
And how did you make that transition to your area of, of focus for ministry yeah. going forward as a church planner? Yeah, at that time, most of the missionaries with our group um, spent a year, year and a half in language and then moved on to someplace else. But it was determined by our team what was needed to be in that very area where we did our language. And so uh, we just stayed there. And uh, so we lived in that little shack oh, wow. yeah, about three years. And then uh, we built a more substantial house just a half mile away and uh, stayed in that that area the entire time from the first day we came to the last. Okay. Wow. That's, that's pretty, I, I didn't realize that for some reason I thought that you had just spent the yearish amount of time in the little, little area with the shack and then moved on to another location. That's, that's pretty phenomenal that you got to be there for eight years, correct? Is that eight years total? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so did you spend all of your first term, which was four years in the shack? That's, Three, three of the four years. Three of the four years. And then in your fourth year, you you had constructed the other home and got to move out to that. Yeah. It wasn't really a shack. It was, a, you know, I had corrugated tin walls. So. Oh. No, Tim, that's a shack, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so are, are there days when you miss the shack? The, or are you glad that it was a, it, it's a part of your story, but... You don't miss it all that much. Every time it rains, I miss it. You know, that mm. the uh, hearing the rain on the tin roof was uh, was wonderful. And um, we also lived uh, probably the corner of that house was about eight feet away from our Somali neighbors. And uh, they became really dear friends as well. But uh, yeah, you miss I miss a lot of things about it. I miss uh, hearing the various languages that are being spoken. Um, I miss hearing the cows as they come back and forth past your place. Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a, I miss the night sounds of, of Africa. There's a lot of things I miss about it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could imagine that it had a, a sweet mix of frustration and joys uh, at times, uh, especially if a cow maybe wandered into your shack, your, your side of the duca or something like that. Um, as you think about that first term, the four years, so the three three years in the the little shack there next to the Somali merchants, and then that that fourth year transitioning out to the house, I'd love to know like what would be words of advice that you would give to the Tim Ross of that time? Uh, I know you have a lot of great memories from the time, but any words of advice that you think, oh, if I could have told myself, or if someone had told me back then this, uh, it would have helped me function better, have a better rhythm for life and ministry. Any words of advice for the Tim Ross of 87 to what would that have been? Yeah. yeah. A couple things that I, I would say. Um, one, I think I would say to that young guy, um, you gotta walk more. Hmm. Um, be sure to get off your motorcycle get out of your vehicle and, uh, and walk more. Um, I was home most nights. I spent a lot of nights out as well. Um, and of course, you're always balancing, you know, thinking about those people who are at home, your kids, uh, your spouse. Um, but there's a lot that gets done as you're, as you're walking, walking along and talking to people. Uh, you're almost always with people. 
uh, in rural African settings. And uh, I think about that book by Kosuke Koyama uh, called Three Mile an Hour God, or is it, is it three? I think it's Two Mile an Hour God, whatever it's yeah. called. But basically, God walks, God works at about the speed that we can walk. Hmm. And, um, and so I, I think that, uh, I think I'd have walked more. Hmm. Uh, one thing that I, I would certainly do differently. Um, Secondly, I think that um, I, uh, I would have worked harder less at doing ministry myself and more at uh, coaching people along who are who are doing it. And of course, I did part of that as well. But um, you know, you you spend all this time on language and culture, and and there's a tendency when you're starting something new that um, that you're the you're the answer man. You're the you're the guy mm-hmm. to try out the preaching and and do all the teaching and and um, and I think in the long run, the the more that we can empower other people to do that, the better better off things are going to go in the long run. They're the they're the experts on the language. They're the, right. they're the and, yeah. And you're referring to Kenyan partners that you were working with. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Wow. Yeah, that's. I think those are both great pieces of advice, not just for the Tim Ross of 1988, but sounds like also great words of advice for those of us that are in ministry right now, uh, that are serving in our various areas around the world. Uh, walk more, make make more time for others, and make sure you're making time to pour into others as well. Uh, Tim, I really am grateful for this time and uh, grateful for you and the opportunity that we have had together and uh, look forward to talking again uh, very soon on another episode of the fellowship podcast. Thanks, Tim. It's been great to be with you, Jake. God bless you. Thank you. My thanks to Tim Ross for being on this episode of the fellowship podcast. And my thanks to you, the listeners for being a part of it as well. You know, Tim shared about his calling and the mark of the Holy spirit on his life and how that truly led him into missions and this calling to seek out how to serve both Kenyans and to further God's kingdom around the world. And it's our hope that the Holy Spirit will continue to speak to folks like you and me through stories like his. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and connect with what God is doing in the world around you.